Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And while you're turning, I want to say how wonderful it is to be back with you. This church is special to us. As a matter of fact, I got a little emotional this morning in looking around and remembering all of those conferences. And I can remember who sat where in a lot of places. I remember Brother Coots sat down here at the front. Brother C.O. Jackson sat on the row behind him. And Brother Roger Dorer sat back at the back, he and his wife Kay. And over here some people from our church in Kansas City. And on and on I could go. It's a real blessing to be back. I, Roger and I were thinking it was probably 2018, the last conference we had when I was here. All right, let's go to 1 Timothy 3. I'll read the verse, first seven verses. And the title of the message, How to Call a Pastor. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without or outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. One of the most important decisions in the life of a church is, the, is in the selecting of a new pastor. Everything in the life and continuance of a church depends to a very great extent on the man who is its pastor. Many churches have been hijacked and even destroyed by unscrupulous individuals posing as men of God who have somehow gotten themselves called as pastor of those churches. My purpose in preaching this message is to try to help this church in the great task ahead of calling a new pastor. The thoughts in this message come from God's holy word and from many years of experience and observation in the matter of calling a pastor. In this sermon, I want to present some things that will help any Baptist church in the selection and calling of a new pastor. Here are eight things 
for a church to do in calling a new pastor. Now, I want to encourage you to write these things down, maybe in the backs of your Bible or in a notebook or something, uh, and I don't see anybody moving, but I'd sure like to see you do this. I believe you'll find these things biblical and helpful as you look for a new pastor. <clears throat> if you write them down, you'll have them for future reference. All right. So eight things for a church to do in calling a pastor. First of all, number one, elect a pulpit committee. A pulpit committee is a group of men. Now I want you to look at the scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, it could not be clearer that the leadership in the church is male. It's men. That's God's revealed will. So a pulpit committee is a group of men elected by a church to find and bring before that church acceptable candidates for the office of pastor. Plainly stated, the purpose of a pulpit committee is to help the church find its new pastor. This committee works to carry out the wishes of the church. They're not unrelated to the church's will and wishes. It works to carry out the wishes of the church. Number two, be sure to recognize what a biblical pastor is. Be sure to recognize what a biblical pastor is. The New Testament uses several terms to describe the men whom God calls to pastor his churches. Each term describes some function or responsibility of the pastor. So here are some of those terms. First of all, a pastor must be a learner or a disciple. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, the Lord Jesus says for us to, quote, learn of me, unquote. And this applies to all Christians but especially to the pastor. The Lord calls men to preach who are willing to learn from the Lord and then teach others what they have learned. A.T. Robertson, the great Baptist Greek scholar, said that the preacher who does not keep learning all the time will die of dry rot. And oh, how true this is. The end of a man's effective ministry is reached the day that he stops learning. I have known several older preachers who should have retired three or four years before they did because their constant repetition in preaching indicates that they have stopped learning. Second, the New Testament calls the preacher a laborer. Let's read that one, Matthew 9, 37 and 38. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. The preacher is to be 
a laborer. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. The preacher is to labor in the Lord's harvest. He is not to be an idler. He must be a reaper who puts in the scythe and harvests the grain. Many of you know Brother Wayne Camp or knew him. Brother Camp once told me of overhearing a Southern Baptist preacher say that he had finally figured out a way to play golf every day of the week. A lazy pastor is a contradiction in terms. A biblical pastor is a laborer in God's harvest. A pastor, like any other worker, should keep regular hours in his study. I always tried to work 40 hours a week, just like every other man in my church did. I don't believe that a pastor can be an effective laborer if he doesn't work 40 hours a week. And of course, that's, that's uh, not really realistic for a pastor. It's more like 70 hours a week with all the hospital calls and problem sessions and so forth. Thirdly, the New Testament refers to God's preacher as a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, not a modern word but a biblical word. The meaning of the word preach is literally to declare like a herald. Now, what is a herald? A herald is one who carries the official message of the king, and he heralds or he declares that message. You've seen pictures, I'm sure, of a man who walked the streets of London at night and he would declare, 10 o'clock, and all's well. The king des desires that people do so and so. That's a herald. When Paul told preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word, he meant literally declare God's message like a herald. Matthew 9.35 tells us that the Lord Jesus himself was a herald of the gospel. Let's turn to that. Matthew, many of you may still be there, 9 and verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching, literally declaring like a herald, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It's quite popular today for preachers to tell their audiences something like this. Today, I will share the gospel with you. Or I will share God's message with you. Well, this reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of the biblical nature of preaching. Christ's preachers do not share the gospel. Christ's preachers declare the gospel. They don't share God's will. They declare 
God's will. Christ preacher must declare the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? It means you've got to preach everything in the book. Paul says in Acts 20, 27, he did this. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Christ preacher must preach the part of God's word about sin. You know, I don't know very many preachers that preach on sin anymore. Vance Habner, the great evangelist, said, Modern day preaching is the administration of laughing gas for the painless extraction of sin. You know, in other words, tell a lot of jokes, make people laugh to understand the gospel. Christ preacher must preach the part of God's word about sovereign grace. He must preach the part of God's word about election. He must preach the part about effectual calling. He must preach the part about accomplished redemption. He must preach the part about repentance. The part about coming judgment. The part about hell. The part about the return of Christ. The part about the separated life. The part about holy living. The part about tithing. The whole counsel of God. A pastor must have recognizable preaching ability. You know, I I know some preachers, and I'm sorry to have to say this, but I know some preachers that just can't preach. They don't have preaching ability. Now, you know, God calls men who have the ability to preach. Preaching is their main responsibility. This is a fundamental requirement for a pastor. He must have preaching ability. Fourthly, the New Testament refers to a pastor as a teacher. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says he must be apt to teach. And Ephesians 4, 11 calls him a pastor teacher. Every man considering entering the ministry should ask himself, Do I have enough knowledge of Scripture doctrine to teach others? Do I really believe what I know? And do I have the ability to teach these things? Fifth, a pastor is one who is a prophet. That is, he speaks forth the message of God. A lot of people think a prophet is one who foretells the future. Well, those in biblical times could do that, but their main function was to speak forth the message of God. God's pastor must preach. He must have the courage to declare God's will whether people like it or not. God's pastor must have courage. Brother, it takes courage to be a pastor and stand in the pulpit and declare the whole counsel of God. He must have the backbone to stand for unpopular truth and to discipline members and to withstand a lot of criticism. Elijah and John the Baptist were great preachers with great courage. I don't see how they did what they did. You know, John the Baptist 
said to Herod, you know, you're living with your sister's wife and that's not right. Sixth, a New Testament pastor is to be an evangelist or literally a gospelizer. One who knows the gospel and declares it to other people. In 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul told preacher Timothy to, quote, do the work of an evangelist, unquote. That's a command for preachers. Too many grace preachers. Oh, I'm, I've been burdened with this for several years. Too many grace preachers just sit down on their sovereignty and do not preach for souls to be saved. Seventh, the New Testament refers to this officer of the church as a pastor. Ephesians 4.11 calls him a pastor. Now what is a pastor? That word literally means shepherd. A pastor is a shepherd of the church. He's a shepherd of Christ's flock. And you know there's three things a shepherd did one with real sheep and one with spiritual sheep. Three things, three functions, key functions of a pastor in relation to a church. He is to lead the church, lead the sheep. He is to feed the church, feed the sheep. And he is to guard the church, guard the sheep. Lead, feed, and guard. That's the preacher's work. Eighth, the New Testament calls the pastor an elder. Now everybody calls me an elder. <laughs> I'm not a pastor. I'm 81. But an elder, as the pastor is called, is not referring to an older man necessarily. Uh, old, not necessarily older in age, but older in spiritual maturity. A pastor must have some measure of experience in spiritual things, in leadership, in preaching. Being young, by the way, this is a critical matter, being young should not be a first or even an important consideration for choosing a pastor. Many churches have been damaged or destroyed after seeking a man who is young as his first qualification for being a pastor. Any pastor you call is going to be a lot younger than I am. So in that sense, it's a younger man. But you know, you don't want a, a young first-timer for an advanced church like this. Ninth, the New Testament calls the pastor a bishop or the bishop of the church. Turn to Titus one seven. Now this is very similar to what our text has to say, but I want you to see that it's it's in the scriptures more than one place. Titus one seven says, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. Now what is a bishop? A bishop, a biblical bishop, is not somebody that's in charge of all the preachers in a certain area. Other denominations teach that. A bishop means literally an overseer. And so the pastor 
as the bishop of the church is the overseer of the church and every part of the church. He's the overseer of the committees. He's the overseer of the deacons. He's the overseer of the women. He's the overseer of the kitchen. He's the overseer of the music. He's the overseer of the missionaries and of all else in the church. He's the bishop. Tenth, the pastor is also called in the New Testament a minister, meaning a servant. In Colossians 1.23, Paul called himself a minister of Christ. Pastors are ministers or servants of Christ, not of some denomination, not of some religious fellowship, but ministers of Christ. All right, we're looking at eight things a church should do in calling a pastor. Number three, diligently seek to find out if the candidate possesses the biblical qualifications for pastor. Now let me run that by you again. Diligently seek to find out if the candidate possesses the biblical qualifications for pastor. The pastor of a Baptist church must meet the clearly revealed qualifications for that office as listed in God's Word. Turn back now to our text in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. And let's look at some of these biblical qualifications. But first of all, uh, first of all, a pastor must be blameless, as verse 2 tells us. Now, it does not say the pastor must be sinless. It says he must be blameless. And there's a lot of difference. The word blameless is a wrestling term. And it means that there must not be anything that sticks out on a man that an enemy can take hold of. Nothing a critic can take hold of. No scandal, no divorce, no criminal record. Nothing that, a, that an enemy can take hold of. You know, I used to be a prison chaplain. And a man came to me and said, I believe the Lord's calling me to preach and be a pastor of a church. I said, I don't think so. Because you are a convicted murderer and you can never live that down. Preacher's got to be blameless. Nothing obvious, nothing uh, scandalous for people to take hold of. The same verse says the pastor must be the husband of one wife. He must not be divorced and or remarried. Of course, the same qualification of necessity applies to his wife. The husband of one wife. Thirdly, the pastor must be sober. And that word literally means self-disciplined in all of his appetites. I once knew a Baptist preacher who weighed over 350 pounds, and so did his wife. He was not sober. He was not disciplined in his appetites. And this was a great hindrance to his ministry. There was always this undertone of 
Oh my, look at that. The meaning here of sober also includes the thought of sober-minded. Preacher ought to be a serious person. Serious about life and serious about spiritual things. Fourthly, the pastor must be apt to teach or able to teach or gifted in teaching. The pastor is the chief teacher in the church and so he has to be able to do so. Not everyone is. Fifth, the pastor must not be given to wine. Now, I don't know too many Baptist preachers that this fits, but I know some whiskey palians that that does apply to. Six, the pastor must not be a striker. That means he must not be a violent man. He must have his temper under control. He must be a man of peace. Seventh, Verse 3 here in 1 Timothy 3 says, The pastor must not be greedy of filthy lucre. He must not be a lover of money. You know, the pulpit committee and the church need to agree with a man about what the salary's going to be when they call him. And they need to be generous, and he needs to accept the church's terms. I know a man who wasn't pastor of a Baptist church for even a year, and he fell into a wrangle with his church over not making enough money. If God has called a man to preach, his great concern will not be his salary increases or his retirement investments, because it says not greedy of filthy lucre. Brother, if you want to make money, don't go into the ministry. It doesn't mean a preacher ought to starve, but it means he shouldn't be greedy of filthy lucre. 8, verse 6 says, The pastor must not be a novice. That means not a new convert. He must have a good measure of spiritual knowledge, maturity, and experience. Ninth, verse 4 says, He must be one who rules well his own family. He must have his children under control and they must live with what their father preaches. I had a revival meeting here in East Texas many years ago. And while, just before I came there, the pastor's teenage daughter uh, had a boyfriend. He came and crawled in the bathroom window at midnight at their house and she went out with him. He did not have his family under control. Titus 1.6 says the pastor's children must be, quote, faithful children, unquote. A pastor's poor home conditions lead to compromises on many issues in his preaching and in his pastoring. Worldly children close the preacher's mouth on worldliness. I know a pastor whose wicked daughters have virtually ruined his ministry. One of them showed up at one of our conferences with her hair dyed green. The other turned to drug use. Because of their wicked worldly lives, 
This man's preaching on sin, if he does, rings hollow. It is of critical importance that a church look for these qualifications in any candidate for pastor of that church. Next, in looking for a new pastor, a church should look for some specific personal traits in a candidate. There's some personal traits that a church should look for in the candidate. First of all, can he preach? I've heard people say, well, old Brother Smith, he's a, he's a good teacher, but not a good preacher. Uh, they, they missed the mark. Can he preach? I'll tell you one thing that stands out about Dan Kozark. He is a preacher. Is he well prepared when he preaches? Does he have a recognizable outline to his sermons? Does he preach Christ and the gospel? That's of greatest importance. Is his belief in grace obvious in his preaching? Does his preaching reveal that he is a strong, independent Baptist? Not reformed. Watch out for reformed Baptists. They come in preaching the doctrines of grace but they're all off on the church and on baptism and a lot of other things. Does he believe in local church only? Second, he must have an overriding interest in the things of God. That ought to be the thing he is uh, wrapped up in in his life. Do preaching and pastoring have first place in his life? Is he a rabid golfer? Is he a rabid hunter? Is he a political junkie? Does his ministry have first place in his life? Thirdly, he must spend time in personal Bible reading and prayer. Now, I don't, I don't know that it's right to ask him if he does that, but it ought to be obvious in his life. A man who does not study God's Word and pray continuously is not qualified to be a pastor. Fourthly, his life must be a model of his message. Turn to 1 Timothy 4.12. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Paul says to the pastor here, be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The effectiveness of a man's message bears a direct relationship to the life that he lives. He must therefore practice what he preaches. Fifth, his wife must fully support his work and his life as a pastor. How many pastors' ministries have been ruined by wives who do not fully support him in his work? Make sure the candidate's wife is in full support of his ministry and full support of his move to your church. Sixth, he must be a man of integrity. A man of integrity pays his bills. Now, I want to tell you something real practical to do here. To find out about a man's integrity, get some of the businessmen in the church 
to run a credit check on that man. This is of major importance in considering any man as a potential pastor. Such a check often keeps a church from calling a shyster. I know of a pastor in Oklahoma City who was arrested for misuse of the church's credit card. He would buy appliances at Walmart and sell them online. He'd buy them with the church credit card and sell them online. Don't even consider a man who is unwilling to talk about his credit. A man who has nothing to hide will not object to questions like this. Number five things to do in calling a pastor. Do two things before anything else. First of all, the very first thing the pulpit committee must do when it meets is to pray. So important. Pray. Ask the great head of the church to send you a faithful shepherd and expect him to do so. Ask him to guide you in every thought and move you make. The very first step is to seek the Lord's leadership through prayer. Every member of the committee and of the church should be in daily prayer because selecting a pastor is one of the most important things in the life of a church. The second item of business for a pulpit committee after prayer is to find people to fill the pulpit while the pulpit committee is searching. Now there may be men in the church who can do this or there may be retired pastors nearby who also can help. But this needs to be done so that the normal services can go on uninterrupted. And it's a difficult thing, but it is a responsibility. Number six, the committee should establish the process it will follow in doing its work. First of all, it should pray and seek out promising candidates for the office. It's their responsibility to seek them out. Now here is a wrong approach. These are excerpts from a letter I received from the pulpit committee of a church in Oklahoma and it was addressed to pastors and others all over the state. Quote, Dear co-workers in the Lord, our church is without a pastor. We are, independent, we are an independent Baptist church and we are seeking the Lord's will concerning this matter. If you know a minister who is seeking a church to pastor, feel free to send his name and address to us, and we will be glad to contact him. We know this calls for a person of patience and perseverance, and one who is flexible enough to work with all kinds of people. <coughs> Enclosed is an information sheet about our church, and please feel free to pass it on to whomever you wish. Sincerely, the pulpit committee. Now this kind of approach is just a big waste of time. Because it will bring in unqualified candidates. A church, here's, here's one of the most important things I would say to you today. A church must seek the man, not the man the church. And I'm going to say that again before the message is over. 
Second, under this process, establish or elect a chairman of the committee. Got to have a chairman. Thirdly, determine things like which committee, which committee members will contact the candidates. And fourthly, the chairman should be designated to make all announcements to the church from the committee. Number seven, ask the candidate some important questions. Now here's a classic example of some wrong questions to ask a candidate. Chris Humphreys, who's an acquaintance of mine in another state, sent me a letter about an experience he had with a pulpit committee. And here's part of the letter. Quote, I had the privilege of being interrogated via a conference call by a pulpit committee from a Southern Baptist church near Cleveland, Ohio, Sunday afternoon. One can tell a lot about a church from the kind of questions asked or not asked from a pulpit committee. Here is a sample of the questions this committee asked me. What is your leadership style? Who is your favorite singer? Really? What kind of music do you like best? They did not ask me about the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of the scriptures, the nature of the atonement, the natural depravity of man, the attributes of God, eternal punishment, the doctrine of salvation, or even if you are a saved person. You know, there's nothing in 1 Timothy 3 or anywhere else in God's Word about the pastor's leadership style. I found out that every pastor's different in his leadership style. Nothing in the Scripture about that. Nothing <laughs> in the Scriptures about being able to relate to one particular age group in the church above the rest. A pulpit committee can give a window into the soul of a church by the questions it asks. Ask a man to relate to you his salvation experience and his call to the ministry. That ought to be right there at the first. If he's not a saved man, you need to move on. Ask him his beliefs on the nature of the church. Ask him what he believes about eschatology. Ask him what he believes about sovereign grace. Ask him about women preachers. Ask him which church ordained him. Ask him about all of his previous churches and the dates that he served in each. Then ask why he left those churches. Ask about the doctrinal stance of the church he now serves. Is it an openly sovereign grace landmark Baptist church? Ask him if he plans to lead the church to become a reformed church. Ask him why he's a Baptist and if he intends to remain a Baptist. Ask him if he believes in and practices biblical church discipline. Ask what he believes about abortion and homosexuals and living together before marriage. Ask him if he smokes. Ask him if he uses only the King James Version that is so important in this day. Number eight, the committee 
should establish some guidelines to be followed in seeking God's man. Number one, avoid considering relatives and friends of church members as candidates. There are almost always people in the church who have relatives who are preachers. This doesn't qualify a man to be pastor of a church. I know of a church that had a deacon whose son-in-law was a pastor. And that deacon was offended and he caused great and lasting disturbance in that church because the church did not vote to call his son-in-law as pastor. Number two, watch out for men who seek the pastorate of your church. I know a preacher who called the pulpit committee of a church that was looking for a pastor, and he told them, listen, God is leading me to become the pastor of your church. Well, evidently, God didn't tell the pulpit committee about it, because they voted to recommend someone else to the church. Remember that in calling a pastor, the church seeks the man, not the man, the church. Thirdly, the committee should keep some information that it learns about candidates confidential. You know, we don't need to tell everything we know. The committee doesn't need to tell everything they learn about the candidate or his church doesn't need to tell the church about it. They should not even tell their wives any more than they tell the church. The best answer to the question of why didn't you recommend Joe Dope to the church if there's some disqualifying thing about him is simply we don't believe that the Lord is leading in that direction. Fourthly, Consider, oh, this is so important, consider only one candidate at a time. The committee should agree on an order in which it will consider the candidates and then take those candidates one at a time. Two or more candidates should never be brought before the church at one time. Calling a pastor should not be a horse race between several candidates. Each candidate will surely charm some and be objectionable to others. If one group's candidate is not selected, they may become the center of discontent in the church. And this is the very easiest way to divide a church. People will tend to say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos. Fifth, do not consider a second candidate until you have completely finished with the first. The committee should deal with the candidate and either recommend him to the church and have him come as a candidate or reject him and move on. Six, observe the candidate in his own church. Visit his church and listen to his preaching so his ordinary preaching will be heard. Call Saturday night before going on Sunday to make sure he's going to be in the pulpit that day, but don't tell him you're coming. Seventh, after careful investigation and hearing of his preaching, a candidate seems, seems promising, if he seems promising, invite him to preach in your church because the church needs to hear him for itself. Eighth, 
Never decide on a candidate after hearing only one sermon. I know a lot of churches that do this. Listen, every preacher has a sugar stick sermon that's better than all of his others. That's a little secret from the ministry. If he preaches just, just one time, he will invariably preach that sugar stick. If he comes and preaches only one or two specially prepared sermons, the church won't get a fair idea of the sermons he later will deliver. Having preached several times during a week or a weekend. Nine, allow only church members to discuss, ask questions, and vote when it comes time to decide. You know, Robert's Rules of Order has served Baptist, Baptist churches well over the years. And one thing in Robert's Rules of Order that's allowed is a church can vote to go into executive session. That means all the non-members have to leave. They can't discuss. They can't vote. And this is really the business of this church, not any other people. Outsiders should have nothing to say in a church's calling of a pastor. Ten, decide ahead of time the percentage of vote necessary to call a man and vote by secret ballot also. <clears throat> in order to maintain unity in, in a church, a high percentage, like 95%, should vote in favor of a candidate. A vote of 85 to 15 or 70 to 30 reveals division in the church. At the same time, it's not essential to have a unanimous vote. One or two critical and argumentative persons should not be allowed to block the will of the rest of the church. So, in conclusion, calling a pastor of a Baptist church is no simple and easy matter, nor must doing so be taken lightly. Careful prayer for and dependence on the Holy Spirit's leading is essential in this most critical matter. Let us pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this church and we pray for them as they face this momentous task